The Lord has been telling and retelling the same story since the very beginning in Genesis 1. The seeds of salvation and mission, they're actually all there in the Old Testament, even before we encounter Jesus in the Gospels. Now, the New Testament authors, they understood this. They knew the ways in which Jesus, for example, fulfilled the Old Testament law or the ways in which he fulfilled Old Testament prophecy or the ways in which Jesus was the second Adam, right? He's the redeemed, the perfect human who lived in obedience to God's call, unlike Adam one, or the ways in which Jesus was the only true, faithful, good king of Israel, where so many others had failed. So this morning, we have a yet another example of those Old and New Testament connections. We're going to see that in Psalm 29, and we're going to see that play out in Matthew 14. So the connection might not be readily apparent at first glance, but it's there. So we're going to spend the majority of our time in Matthew 14, the gospel passage you just heard, but we need to hear Psalm 29 first and have it set the stage for us. So let's start there. Psalm 29 is, I mean, it's a glorious psalm. It's wonderful. This is a picture of the Lord as a a warrior king, if you will. It's a tribute to him as a sovereign, keyword warrior king. In the beginning, if you, if you watch how it plays out, it reads like a military processional. And it's supposed to. So it's just images of, of power and of might and of this holy fanfare. So if you have in your mind set up sort of a, like a victorious military parade and the Lord is, is at the head of it, that's the right picture. It's a picture of a warrior king who is mighty, who is powerful, sovereign, underscore, underscore, over all creation, okay? All of creation responds to the name of the Lord. When Jenny heard that, did you hear how many times the name of the Lord was mentioned? The name of the Lord does this. The name of the Lord does that. The name of the Lord does this. All powerful. Creation responds to it. The sun, the moon, the water, the wind, the animal life shatters the cedars. I mean, it's mighty. Everything responds to God's voice. It's all under his rule and his reign. That last line kind of encapsulates it towards the end of the psalm. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood waters. That's a picture of that reigning reality that I'm talking about. It's impressive. It's intended to inspire uh, awe, gratitude within us. Who is this king of glory? It's Yahweh. That's who it is. So towards the end of Psalm 29, we see this mighty warrior king isn't merely reigning uh, aloof and from on high divorced from his people. He's not, that's not how he, he rolls, so to speak. This is a king who is with his people, who is for his people. This mighty king takes his people's welfare very seriously. There's ownership. There's a sense of responsibility over them. And his people respond with worship and exaltation. It's kind of what we see in the psalm, the movement. His presence is an encouragement to them and to us. So we see a king who leads us with his strength. He fights for us so we don't have to. And he blesses us with his peace. In fact, the final words for the ending idea, Psalm 29, is shalom, verse 11, right? That ending note is one of peace, it's one of rest and wholeness under the banner of the king. Okay. Pretty marvelous, okay? Wonderful psalm. But there's actually more going on here than uh, 
under the hood than meets the eye. I want to just tease that out just a little bit. So if you do some poking around in like ancient Near Eastern literature, you find out that Psalm 29 reads very much like ancient Canaanite poetry. So what? Well, track with me here. Specifically, it's very similar to Canaanite hymns to the storm god Baal. Okay? Very similar. So Psalm 29 is very polemical. It's very provocative. It's very subversive. The biblical authors, I mean, they're way craftier and savvier than we give them credit for sometimes, I think. So Psalm 29 in all its beauty and all that, is also a very clear thumbing of the nose at the ancient Near Eastern pagan gods. Like Baal, who claimed to be almighty and powerful, right? The psalm answers this question. Who is the king of all creation? Not Baal. Yahweh. Yahweh is. Yahweh is old, the Old Testament God who is sovereign over all creation. Okay? Not Baal. Yahweh. So note that, okay? So now we're better prepared to enter into our gospel reading, and hopefully it'll become very clear as we move into it this morning. So Matthew 14, 22 through 33. Let's pick up the story. Uh, Another day of ministry with Jesus and the disciples, okay? They're towards the end of the day, and they're in the midst of the burgeoning crowds. The day is drawing to a close. Things are beginning to wind down. And Jesus essentially tells the disciples, if I can paraphrase it, uh, let's divide and conquer here. I'll dismiss the crowds. Uh, You head over to the lake. I'm going to go pray. We'll we'll meet up later. Okay. Now, Jesus is quite clear about this to the point that he literally insists or he compels the disciples to get in the boat and cross over the other side. He doesn't sort of suggest, you know, it'd be a great idea if you do this. Uh, the language is unusually strong. He kind of makes them. So he compels them. He insists that they go. Why? We don't know, as is often the case when Jesus does things. We don't always know the motivation or why he's doing it. But essentially, that's what happens. So they get in the boat. They begin to cross over the lake. Jesus then retreats to be alone with God the Father. It's one of those rare but very essential times where he seeks out solitude to be with his heavenly Father. And again, meanwhile, the disciples, they hop in the boat, they begin to cross. So some unspecified but significant amount of time passes and elapses, probably several hours here. Day turns to dusk, which turns to evening, which then turns into early morning, the wee hours. So all the while, Jesus is praying in solitude. Here's the picture. And the disciples are laboring away in the boat, but not making any real headway. Okay. There's some distance distance from the shore. They're far from land. They're far from Jesus. Both are probably out of sight. So that's what they're up to. The scriptures tell us it's the fourth watch, which means nothing to us. That's 3 to 6 a.m. So again, they've been at it for a while. They've been fighting the waves for the better part of the night. Literally, the language is uh, the wind is harassing the boat, so very strong. Okay, It's dark. They're weary. They're sleep-deprived. You kind of get a picture for for their situation. And most importantly, uh, they're in trouble. They're not in a good way right now. But unlike in Matthew 8, where Jesus is with them in the boat and he stills the the storm. You remember that? Peace be still. That word. This time, the disciples are in the boat alone. And they are without Jesus. 
So despite the fact, get the picture in your head, despite the fact that several of the disciples, they're skilled fishermen, they know the seas. This is not new to them. Despite that, their competency and their capability out on the water, they're not doing well. They're in trouble. And it's fair to say that the stakes are higher here and that the training wheels are just, they're off now. They're off. Eventually, Jesus does come to them. And you know how he comes. Walking on the sea, walking on the water, and, you know, they're predictably terrified. Now, you know, they do that whole, it's a ghost or it's an apparition or, or spirit. This might not be our first response. We'd like to think, oh, I, I, I would know that was Jesus. Well, they did not. They were scared. And I think it makes sense. To them, the sea or really any large body of water was a living symbol of uh, chaos for the ancients. They believed it to be the home of evil spirits. Some believed it to be the home of drowned souls. It was a chaotic, dangerous place. The sea was was generally a place of fear for them. So what I want you to hear is we are hearing their fears and we're hearing their superstitions here come into play. That's the, it's an apparition, it's a spirit, it's a ghost. Now, you know, we can say, oh, those primitive ancients, we don't have any superstitions. Now, we know that isn't true. We all have our superstitions and fears. And let's not forget that pagan connection I talked about in Psalm 29. With Baal, the storm god who controls the winds. Maybe that's in their thinking as well. I don't know. But they're afraid. And superstitions are at play as well. While I might not share their superstitions, I can definitely identify with their fear of the deep water. Anybody here, like sort of scared of deep water, I'm going to just, I'm going to go ahead and raise my hand. (laughs) Some, yes. It's that primeval, unpredictable, dangerous, scary place. So when I was a boy, um, and this is why I identify with it. When I was a boy growing up in Dallas, we would often vacation in East Texas, a prettier place than Dallas, which doesn't take much, but there it is, Um, right? So pine trees, uh, we went to a place called Dangerfield State Park, and it was beautiful. It had a beautiful uh, lake in the middle, a sandy bottom lake, which was a really refreshing. It was nice and cool. had like the diving platform out off from the land, uh, a dock, nature trail around it. Uh, it, was, it was beautiful, wonderful place. So we often went there uh, when I was a boy. And I have many great stories there, but I have one really seminal story that marked me, and it is this. So out there one day, playing on the shore, hanging about on the dock, and and somebody just yells out, there's someone down there. And of course, everyone, what, what? There's commotion, there's whatever. They pull a body out of the lake, and there's a man who has died, who's drowned. I don't know if he got tangled underneath the uh, diving platform or what, but they pull him out, and he's just blue, he's pale blue. As a kid, I mean, that makes an, that makes an impression on me. That's the first time I'd seen a, a, a dead body before. And it made quite an impression on me. And literally, I kid you not, to this day, I still feel somewhat uneasy when I'm in deep water. I just don't quite feel at home, let's say. Uh, I can't see what's underneath me. That's a little unnerving. Like, what's swimming around down there? What's going on? I don't know. In the back of my mind is that irrational fear of the deep, that it's a place of death, that it's a place of danger, right? Now, I, I don't know what it is why we think we're any, any safer here on terra firma than we are on the sea. 
Uh, did you guys know we had an earthquake this morning? 5.1. Like, I didn't know we had earthquakes in North Carolina. What? I mean, I was in one in Seattle in 2001. It was a 6.8, and we were closer to the epicenter. But, like, I, I, I thought the cat was messing with my chair at first. And I looked around, and there's nothing there, and the house shakes. And I think, we just had an earthquake. Okay, so be it. My point is, is this and that. I get their sense of dread with the sea and that sense of unease and it being sort of a dangerous place. But maybe I'm forgetting that God is just as sovereign over my life on dry ground as he is in the deep waters. The rules don't change just because my location swaps around. So and that's another sermon, perhaps. We'll leave that for another time. But we all have our superstitions. We all have our fears, right? So they fear the deep. And they respond, it's a ghost. But just like Psalm 29, there are other Old Testament assurances that we need not fear the depths, the deep. That Yahweh is in control even when we feel very much out of control. Job 9.8, you alone, speaking of God, of course, you alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Mighty. Hear that? Psalm 77, 19, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. Who has that power? Yahweh. Isaiah 43, 16, thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. This is a picture of a sovereign, mighty Lord. So alongside Psalm 29, these are pictures of God displaying his power over the unruly forces of the deep, that watery chaos. So let's follow the reasoning here. And I know it's obvious, but humor me. Okay, so if Yahweh of the Old Testament is sovereign over the wind and the waves, but not Baal. Okay, got it. And if this Jesus exercises that same authority, then... Okay. If you haven't answered that question, I'll answer here in a few moments. But let's get back to the narrative. So in the face of the disciples' fear, Jesus responds. Okay, again, not aloof. He responds. Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Notice, Jesus does not dismiss their fears, and he doesn't deny the crisis at hand, okay? God deals in reality. I like that. doesn't try to put a good face on it. He didn't say, oh, you're fine, it's not that bad, you know, chin up, sailor, you're okay. doesn't do that. Nope. What Jesus offers here is the realest of the real. He offers himself. He offers his presence. He draws near to them in their calamity. He doesn't remain aloof. Take courage. It's I. Don't be afraid. And perhaps I can be so bold as to paraphrase it this way. Take courage. I am. So you don't have to be. You're good. I've got you. Peter, again, predictably... Voices, um, I think he voices the disciples' collective uncertainty, right? Lord, if, did you hear that? Lord, if it's you, command me to come out on the water. We all know what happens next. We know this story, right? He's successful at first. Jesus, excuse me, Peter did walk on the water for a time. Peter did move towards Jesus. Well done, Peter. Until his focus shifts away from Jesus and to the formidable wind and waves, to his circumstances, if I can put it that way. It's at that key moment where he falters 
And glug, 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 he begins to sink into the deep. And there's that connection that's been made for centuries, which you probably heard. We can focus on the object of our faith. Jesus or on the waves that buffet us, right? Keep our eyes on Jesus and walk as he walked or focus solely on circumstances, which are often difficult and they can swallow us up. We know the story. As he sinks, Peter cries out, Lord, save me. And the text says immediately, immediately, Jesus reaches out, takes hold of Peter and literally saves his life, saves his life. So, folks, this is I mean, this is one of these things I forget. I mean, this is the salvation story in miniature, isn't it? Lord, save me. And Jesus, the hand is there at the ready in our moment of dire need. God reaches out and he saves us. And he says this to Peter, oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Why'd you doubt? Doubt is literally to be, um, it's this idea of being divided in two, to be of a divided mind, right? To be, uh, I think the Old Testament also calls it to be double-minded, right? To be divided in two different directions. Jesus seems to be telling Peter, when push comes to shove, you simply can't keep your eyes on me and the waves simultaneously. Can't be done. You must be of one undivided uh, whole mind, of an undivided faith, an undistracted gaze upon me. It's a matter of where we place our trust, is it not? You know, it's a matter of where ultimate reality is. And this is crazy. Think about this with the way the story is going. They have this rather intense brief exchange while they're still out on the water. They're not on the boat yet. So, oh, you've little faith. Why did you doubt? As he's probably pulling them up. And the waves do not subside until Jesus gets in the boat with Peter. Now, these miracles like this, where Jesus is exercising uh, his mastery over the sea, over chaos, the wind and the waves, all that, they're in all the Gospels, and they're there for a reason. Jewish readers and hearers of the Gospels, they would have caught these echoes, these Old Testament echoes and illusions that I'm talking about. And every Gospel writer, including Matthew, is concerned with this question. Who is Jesus? Who is he? So let me answer that question from earlier. Who holds sway over the sea and can command creation to do his bidding? The Lord, Yahweh, the Old Testament, who is one and the same with Jesus. Thus the disciples, something happened. They make that connection and they offer confession at the end of this passage. Truly you are the Son of God, the Messiah. Let's return here in closing to Peter. And I want him to preach to us. Because it's easy to kind of have Peter be sort of this wooden character, an object lesson. And, and I think he's more human than that. But I want him to preach to us. Peter is a picture of faith in a time of crisis. Okay? Peter is a picture of faith in a time of crisis. Do you think that might be relevant for our, relevant for our church in this season? Who would say Yes. I see a hand. I want to put my hand up big time. Yes, Peter is a picture of faith in a time of crisis. I think it's relevant to us right now. Our church is in the midst of some profound transitions. We're also in the midst of a profoundly difficult context. COVID. What are we at? Six months now? We're still going, right? The ways we experience are fierce, right? They're real. So we don't have to deny them. We don't have to downplay them. When God deals in reality, so should we, right? The rain falls on both the righteous and the wicked. Uh, in this life, you'll have troubles. Scott mentioned that last week. So forth. 
So we are being buffeted right now by the waves of circumstance, no doubt, as a church. Yes. I also believe we are being buffeted by the devil, too. I really do. I think he's beating up on us. I think I have hopes of discouraging us and or distracting us right now. Luther knew this really well. He often said, where God builds a church, the devil builds a chapel. Smart, strategic, right? So wherever there's goodness happening, guess where Satan is? He's right there beside it, trying to spoil it. He's always close at hand. He wants to take the good work of God and mess it up. So I think we're being harassed by not just the waves of circumstance. I think the devil's dogging us a little bit right now as well. I think we're experiencing both right now. So what would this Jesus, our Lord, ask of us right now? What would he have our church to do in this challenging, transitional, changing season? However you want to put that. Two simple things. And this, this I leave you with. One, I really think Jesus wants to encourage us and assure us. Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Take courage. It's me. It's me. Don't be afraid. I am so you don't have to be. Okay? So we need to hear those words today spoken over us as a church. Maybe as individuals too. Sure. And I suspect many of us need to hear that in the depths of our hearts. We are far from alone in our troubles. God is with us in this. He's out on the waves. Right? He's not in the safety of the boat saying, you're okay. You're okay. You'll be fine. Just, just bring, him, bring him a little closer. He's out on the waves. He's with us. Okay? So be encouraged. Be assured. Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Okay? So there's an encouragement and an assurance and a call to boldness. Lastly, I think Jesus is asking us to respond in faith rather than fear. Okay? Faith rather than fear. Now isn't, isn't the time to panic. Now is not the time to freak out. It's the time to lean in all the closer towards Jesus. It's time to fix our eyes up, upon him. It's the time to be of a, a whole undivided mind and of one purpose. Remember, Peter did walk on water for a time. He did do it. And I think Jesus is asking the same of us as a church in this season. Have faith, believe, step out of the boat, take a risk, and keep your eyes on me.